Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Biden meets Xi Jinping at the G20 summit. Biden moves to secure abortion access for unaccompanied migrant youth. Turkish police arrest 46 over an Istanbul bombing. Iranian rockets hit the Kurdish headquarters in Iraq. Zelensky visits Kherson and alleges Russian atrocities committed. Israel strikes an airbase in central Syria, killing two soldiers. Three are killed at the University of Virginia. Trump-backed Mastriano concedes defeat in the Pennsylvania governor's race. Morgan Stanley predicts that the recession might strike Europe, but not the U.S. Iran issues its first death sentence tied to protests. And in Ghana, a junior finance minister is fired over a gold mining scandal. Our top story, Biden meets Xi Jinping at the G20 summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NPR Online News, The Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, USA Today, and Reuters. For the first time since taking office, U.S. President Joe Biden met with Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping for sideline talks during the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia on Monday. While the pair had met several times before Biden became president, this meeting comes at a time of fraught relations between the countries, namely over China's alleged support of Russia's war in Ukraine, Taiwan, and issues of technology and trade. Talks indicate a reopening of communication lines between Beijing and Washington that had been interrupted since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August, which the PRC responded to with military drills and by suspending cooperation with America. Opening the meeting, Biden stated that both countries must manage their differences to prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict and to cooperate on urgent global issues while Xi expressed his hope that they would chart the right course for this relationship. Later, Biden told reporters that North Korea and the Ukraine war were among the subjects discussed with Xi and that both countries find the threat or use of nuclear weapons totally unacceptable. China's economic practices, as well as its actions in Hong Kong, the Taiwan Strait, and Xinjiang were also reportedly brought up, with Xi stating that Taiwan is a red line that must not be crossed. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And during this podcast, we always extract the spins. And for this one, we begin with a democratic narrative, and it's courtesy of NPR Online News. While U.S.-China relations are far from mended, this is a first and significant step in the right direction. The meeting was about building a floor with China so that relations can improve and progress on critical issues can be made going forward. Our Republican narrative is brought to us by Red State. This meeting was another shameful public appearance by Biden on his latest tour overseas. After apologizing for the U.S. leaving the Paris Agreement under Trump and mistakenly calling Cambodia Colombia, he showed weakness and desperation in his meeting with Xi, failing to hold Beijing accountable for any of its aggression. And we do have a nerd narrative for this story, and it says there is a 19% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war before the year 2035, and that's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. 
And we continue with more news from President Biden as the administration moves to secure abortion access for unaccompanied migrant youth. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, New York Post, Fox News, Reuters, and Saltwire. Biden's administration on Thursday issued a directive instructing officials to avoid placing pregnant migrant children or migrant minors who have suffered from sexual assault within states that lack abortion access. The guidance, issued by the U.S. Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR, also instructed officials to transfer girls who are already being housed to states where abortion remains legal. The ORR is in charge of housing unaccompanied children who lack legal status in America. The ORR, a subsection of the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, stated that unaccompanied children who are pregnant require an appropriate location to support health care needs and access. According to ORR data, approximately one-third of the 123,000 unaccompanied migrant children who were taken into U.S. custody in the 2021 fiscal year were female. The organization has not published figures on how many of them were pregnant. During the Trump administration, the ORR prohibited staff from facilitating abortions without permission from the agency's director a move that an appeals court decided in 2019 was unconstitutional. At least 20 states currently have full or partial abortion bans in place, following the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the federal right to abortion in June this year. Thanks for the facts, Eric. The left narrative spin on this story comes from the Los Angeles Times. Polls continuously show that the majority of Americans support abortion and disagree with the Supreme Court's decision to revoke the constitutional liberty. It is ludicrous that politicians are restricting women's bodily autonomy, and the midterms have further demonstrated that Americans want reproductive rights upheld. And a conservative narrative from this story is being provided by Washington Examiner. Abortion is certain to remain legal in many states for the foreseeable future. Therefore, it is not enough to simply ban the procedure. Pro-life supporters must develop efforts to help mothers get through unexpected pregnancies. By giving mothers-to-be more options than parenthood or facing abortionists' knife, U.S. society will start moving away from its fixation on Roe v. Wade. We have a nerd narrative on this story. This one says that there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before the year 2030 according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Turkish police arrest 46 over an Istanbul bombing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Reuters, DW, Al Arabia, and Independent. Turkish police have reportedly arrested 46 people in response to a bombing in Istanbul, which Turkish Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu on Monday described as a terrorist attack, likely carried out by Kurdish militants from the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and the People's Defense Unit, or YPG. Turkish officials didn't rule out the Islamic State group. According to Soylu, the suspected bomber is among those arrested following Sunday's blast in the popular Taksim Square area, which killed at least six people and injured 81 others. Vice President Fuat Akteh stated that a female suspect was believed to have carried out the bombing. Through a statement on its website, the PKK rejected involvement and stated it would not attack members of the civilian population. The Kurdish-organized Syrian Democratic Forces also denied responsibility. 
Soylu went on to claim that militant Kurds from the Syrian Kurdish town of Kobani on the Turkish border were behind the attack and responded to a condolence message from the White House by comparing the U.S. to a killer showing up first at the crime scene. Turkey has launched three military operations against the U.S.-backed YPG in northern Syria, which Ankara considers an offshoot of the PKK. The PKK, which is classified as a terrorist organization by Turkey, the EU, and the U.S., has been waging an insurgency against the Turkish state since 1984, with more than 40,000 people killed in the conflict. Meanwhile, Turkish President Erdogan vowed that those responsible for the alleged terror attack will be punished as they deserve. In December 2016, twin bombings claimed by a PKK branch killed 38 people and injured 155 outside a soccer stadium in Istanbul. Thank you for the facts, Scott. Two spins emerging from this story, and we begin with an establishment critical narrative coming from Daily Sabah. Everything points to the latest attack being an act of terrorism by the separatist PKK and its Syrian Kurdish offshoot, the YPG. And while Washington is now shedding tears, it's the U.S. that's supporting the supposed, quote, freedom fighters of the PKK, YPG, and Syria with money and weapons, despite officially classifying the PKK as a terrorist organization. Through its policy of hypocrisy and double standards, the U.S. shares responsibility for the innocent victims of the recent attack. And we've got a pro-establishment narrative. This comes from the Jerusalem Post. Although no one has yet claimed responsibility for the attack, Ankara is already spreading claims that the attack was masterminded by the Syrian PKK and YPG without providing any evidence. At the same time, it's accusing the U.S. of being partly responsible through its alleged support of so-called terrorists in Syria. The immediate spread of such theories presumably serves the purpose of justifying a renewed military campaign against U.S.-backed forces in Syria. In our next story, Iranian rockets hit Kurdish headquarters in Iraq. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, New York Times, and Shafak. Rockets fired on Monday reportedly killed one and injured ten when Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, targeted the headquarters of an Iranian Kurdish party in the Iraqi city of Khoi, near Erbil, the capital of the autonomous Kurdish region of northern Iraq. According to Iran's semi-official Fars News Agency, the IRGC targeted terrorist groups with missiles and drones. Kurdish sources said the IRGC had targeted the Kamala Party's base in Suleymaniya with six drones and the Democratic Party of Iranians' Kurdistan's base in Khoi with four missiles. Iranian Kurdish militant opposition bases in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq have been attacked by the IRGC ever since the death of Masa Amini on September 16th and the subsequent nationwide protests. Iran accuses Kurdish militants in northern Iraq of fueling the unrest in Iran. Multiple Iranian Kurdish opposition groups have kept bases near the Iran-Iraq border. These groups assert that their weapons are for self-defense and to help defend the Iraqi border. Prior to the attack, the IRGC had frequently cautioned officials in northern Iraq and the country's central government that secessionist groups based in the region must exit or be disarmed. So far, no actionable efforts have been done, according to Iranian officials. 
IRGC's attack on Erbil on Monday was denounced by the United Nations Assistant Mission for Iraq, or the UNAMI, which called it a violation of Iraq's sovereignty. The UN mission also said the only way forward is to have dialogue between Iraq and Iran over mutual security concerns. We've got a pro-Iran spin on this story from the New Arab. Rioters linked to foreign enemies are causing the ongoing unrest in Iran. Armed Iranian-Kurdish opposition groups operating in neighboring Iraq have infiltrated Kurdish areas of Iran to sow insecurity and catalyze unrest. To meet this threat, the IRGC will continue to strike the main basis of these groups to protect Tehran's national security. And the anti-Iran spin is courtesy of the Arab Weekly. Iran is threatening the peace and stability of the region by continuously targeting the positions of Iranian Kurdish opposition groups in the autonomous Kurdish region of northern Iraq. The Iraqi government rightly condemns this crime, which is a direct threat to Baghdad's security and sovereignty. And now for the roundup of the conflict in Ukraine. As we've reached day 264 of the fighting, Zelensky visits Kherson and alleges Russian atrocities committed in the city. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, TASS, Daily Mail, the Associated Press, and Reuters. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Monday visited the recently recaptured city of Kherson after Russian troops withdrew from the west bank of the Dnipro River last week. We are moving forward, he said to troops while also thanking NATO and other allies. We are ready for peace. Peace for all our country, he added. Earlier in his nightly address on Sunday, Zelensky alleged, without providing evidence, that investigators have already documented more than 400 Russian war crimes in the city. In the Kherson region, the Russian army left behind the same atrocities as in other regions of our country, he said. While Ukrainian troops were met with jubilation when they entered the city, some residents accused of collaborating with Russian forces were seen tied to lampposts a form of public humiliation commonly inflicted on Russian-speaking Ukrainians in Kyiv-controlled areas. According to Russian officials, an estimated 115,000 residents of Kherson evacuated the city to Russian-controlled areas prior to Russia's withdrawal, while roughly 100,000 residents elected to stay. The city had a pre-war population of roughly 280,000. Meanwhile, according to Ukraine's military, six journalists, including from Britain's Sky News and America's CNN, have had their accreditation removed for allegedly breaking the rules for working in areas of hostility. Ukraine's general staff said journalists had carried out information activities in the city of Kherson without the consent of the relevant commanders and public relations services of military units. In a separate report, Ukraine's military also claimed to have liberated 12 cities and towns in the Luhansk region on Monday. The claim couldn't be independently verified at this stage. In the meantime, Russian attacks were recorded in the regions of Sumy, Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, and Dnipopetrovsk in the last 24 hours, with no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Scott, thank you for the facts. And we look at some of the spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from Associated Press. Russia's withdrawal from Kherson is a strategic victory for Ukraine. Not only was this the only regional capital captured by Russian forces in its eight-month invasion, it sets the stage for Ukraine's advance into Zaporizhia, while shattering Russia's hopes of advancing to Mykolaiv and Odessa. We've also got a pro-Russian narrative from TASS. 
Russia's withdrawal from Kherson was the correct decision to take. Its position there was no longer tenable, and it was the right move in order to protect the lives of servicemen who were at risk of being cut off. And a nerd narrative for this story says there's a 55% chance that more than 150,000 people will be killed in the Russo-Ukrainian War in 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. We continue with more violence as Israel strikes airbase in central Syria, killing two soldiers. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CBS, Jerusalem Post, and Reuters. Israeli airstrikes on the Shirat Air Base in the central Syrian governorate of Homs killed two Syrian soldiers and wounded three on Sunday, according to the Syrian State News. Several missiles were reportedly intercepted by air defense systems. The attacks took place after Israeli warplanes were seen flying over Lebanon, whose airspace Israeli air forces will pass through to conduct operations in Syria. Syrian journalist Naur Abu Hassan claimed the airstrikes targeted an Iranian weapons shipment intended for Lebanon's Hezbollah. The shipment was reportedly in transit via the airport, which is often used by Russian forces stationed in the country. A military source said that the runway, underground facilities, and aircraft shelters at Shira have been greatly expanded by the Russian military over the last three years. The latest attack comes after airstrikes last week targeted a fuel convoy, on the Syrian-Iraqi border. The U.S. denied conducting the operation, and some Syrian opposition activists blamed Israel. Israel has reportedly conducted hundreds of strikes on targets inside government-controlled parts of Syria, but seldom acknowledges or discusses them. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-Iran narrative spin from the Times of Israel. Israel has been quite clear that it will not permit Iran to freely move weapons and fighters through Syria if it threatens Israeli security. If endangered, Israel will target Iranian assets in all of the countries into which Iran has dug its tentacles. Iran will continue to see strikes like this one if aggression continues. Al-Mayadeen gives us a pro-Iran spin. This is just another example of Israel's constant aggression towards Syria and the resistance as a whole. While the West continually pontificates about Ukrainian sovereignty, it says nothing when Israel violates both Lebanese and Syrian airspace on a weekly basis. The U.S. and Israel have no credibility whatsoever. Three are killed in a University of Virginia shooting. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, New York Post, Washington Post, and the Daily Mail. A shooting on the University of Virginia campus late Sunday night has left three people dead and two others injured. The suspect, Christopher Darnell Jones Jr., was apprehended Monday. A motive for the attack hasn't yet been provided. Shortly after the shooting, the campus was placed on lockdown, issuing a run-hide-fight alert. University President James E. Ryan acknowledged those deceased and injured, saying it was an unimaginably sad day. The victims were five students, including three members of the university's football team. The shooting reportedly took place in a parking garage on a bus that had just returned from a field trip. The three fatalities have been confirmed as wide receivers Devin Chandler and Lavelle Davis Jr. and linebacker Deshaun Perry. Sunday night's shooting isn't the first to take place at the University of Virginia. In February, two campus police officers were shot and killed while responding to a call at a campus building, and a 2007 mass shooting claimed the lives of 32 victims. 
Scott, thank you for the facts of this violent story. As we take a look at the spins that have emerged, the first one is a left narrative coming from Democrats.org. Once again, the utter lack of gun regulation has created a tragedy. No one should have to risk their lives to attend school or stroll around campus. Too many politicians have accepted this as a way of life. Gun violence can be reduced while also maintaining the rights of gun owners. But more must be done to ensure that guns don't fall into the wrong hands. We've got a right narrative spin from the Libertarian Institute. While tragic, the idea that school shootings are common in America is false. More Americans die from drowning every year than in mass shootings, but you don't hear about that. Politicians on the left focus on school shootings to garner political points. More must be done to address the root causes of the violence. Simply curbing the rights of law-abiding gun owners isn't the answer. And we do have a nerd narrative for this story. It says there is a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.38 small firearms per capita in the USA by the year 2029. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Uh, Eric, I know we like to have as much fun as we can with the news. Doesn't look like there's uh, much fun to be had today, but I will just report that uh, in addition to to this tragic shooting in Virginia, there was also four students um, apparently shot and killed at the University of Idaho today as well and under kind of mysterious circumstances. So it's been uh, a, a really sad day. What a shame. What a shame. In our next story, U.S. midterm news as Mastriano concedes defeat in Pennsylvania governor's race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Daily Wire, NBC, and Fox News. On Sunday, Pennsylvania Republican State Senator Doug Mastriano, who was endorsed by former President Trump, issued a one-page statement conceding his defeat in the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race to Attorney General Josh Shapiro five days after the race was called. Mastriano received 2.2 million votes of 41.9% to Shapiro's 3 million votes, which equaled 56.3%. Although he ran on social issues popular with the GOP, Mastriano's attendance in D.C. at a rally on January 6, 2021, reportedly cost him support from the mainstream of the party. He also alienated some voters by echoing Trump's highly controversial claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Mastriano wrote the results were, quote, difficult to accept, but he didn't see a course other than concession. He urged his supporters to give Shapiro a chance to succeed and, quote, pray that he leads well. Although he didn't question the results of his election, Mastriano did write that Pennsylvania is in, quote, great need of election reform. He went on to write, quote, we can and must do better to make our elections more transparent, secure, and more quickly decided. Mastriano's loss wasn't the only one by a Trump-backed candidate in a high-profile Pennsylvania statewide race last week, as Dr. Mehmet Oz lost his bid for the U.S. Senate to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman the race flipped the Pennsylvania seat from Republican to Democrat. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts on this political story. Unsurprisingly, we have some very political narratives. Let's start with Politico's Democratic narrative spin. What a great victory for democracy. First, many of the country's biggest deniers of the 2020 election were outright rejected by voters in 2022. Second, their conspiracy theories turned out to be nothing more than bluster, as they all eventually conceded traditionally, even if it took Mastriano a few days longer than the others. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Washington Examiner. Mastriano might have been too far right to win a statewide election this time around, 
However, his campaign highlighted vital questions about the state's election laws that must be reformed, and the GOP rallied around that issue. While continuing his role as state senator, he could help to reform that flawed system. You Surely you've got some sort of a comment since you're a Pennsylvania resident. I'm just happy all the commercials are over. I, I don't know what deodorant to use anymore. <laughs> Morgan Stanley reports the U.S. may avoid recession, but Europe won't. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Malay Mail, Teletrader, and Edge Markets. In a report released Sunday, Morgan Stanley predicted there will be a split in GDP growth between the world's 10 developed countries, the G10, with the UK and the Eurozone facing a recession in 2023 and the US narrowly avoiding one. The average G10 growth next year is expected to be 0.3%, with the US seeing a 0.5% increase. China will reportedly outpace the average emerging markets prediction with 3.7% growth in 2023, with a GDP increase of 5%. The U.S. Federal Reserve is still expected to retain its high interest rates while inflation remains high, with the report projecting that job growth slows meaningfully and unemployment continues to rise. The report also says global inflation will peak in the current quarter with disinflation driving the narrative next year, though tightening rate hikes through 2023 and into 2024, including in the U.S., will result in two very weak years. Core inflation in the U.S. is set to fall to 2.9% by the end of 2023, and headline inflation, excluding food and fuel, to drop to 1.9%. U.S. stocks, however, are expected to lag behind Japan and Asian emerging markets. Those were the facts. Let's look at the spins, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from CNET. At this point, the debate over whether the U.S. is officially in a recession doesn't matter. Prices for everyday goods are going up. Unemployment is expected to rise above 4%, not including people who've stopped looking for a job. And loan interest rates are still devastatingly high. Average workers are still feeling crushed by this economy, and no financial analyst's report can make them feel better. The administration must do more to defeat inflation. And CNN brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The Fed has been tackling inflation, and it has been working. Morgan Stanley isn't the first to say there's a lesser chance of a U.S. recession than there was earlier this year, as Goldman Sachs has reduced the probability of a recession to 35%. Economic growth has already occurred, and gross domestic product growth looks headed for about 1%. I'm I'm tired of paying $100 for 2x4s. Yeah, I knew it was bad when uh, famous rapper Fat Joe said his wife came home from the store with one bag of groceries and it costs $350, and Fat Joe (laughs) needs to eat. I know, right? In our next story, Iran issues its first death sentence tied to protests. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Daily Mail, Iran International, Al Jazeera, DW, and Al Arabia. Iran's Revolutionary Court has issued its first known death sentence for participation in nationwide protests over the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. Sunday's ruling found an unidentified defendant guilty of setting a government building on fire and sentenced them for, quote, disturbing public order and comfort community and colluding to commit a crime against national security. Iran's judiciary's website also reported that the accused had been sentenced for, quote, waging war against God and corruption on earth, violating one of Iran's most serious laws. 
A separate court in Tehran also sentenced five others to between five and ten years in jail for their roles in the protests that began in Iran two months ago. The sentences, which follow a call from the majority of Iranian ministers of parliament for the judiciary to, quote, deal decisively with protesters, are only preliminary, and their details will not become publicly accessible until an appeals court confirms that they're appropriate. Hundreds of demonstrators in three provinces were charged over their actions on Sunday, and over 2,000 people have been charged by authorities since the unrest began. 164 protesters have been charged in the southern province of Hormozgan, while 276 more have been charged in the central region of Markazi. However, 100 young people were released once they had signed pledges agreeing not to continue demonstrating. Unrest in Iran has also been prompted by allegations that a police commander raped a 15-year-old girl who was in custody in the port city of Chabakhar. At least 123 people were killed when security forces opened a fire on protesters in the province of Sistine, Baluchistan, in demonstrations prompted by allegations. According to NGO Iran Human Rights, at least 326 people have now been killed by security forces due to the ongoing protests. We've got a pro-Iran spin on this story coming from the Tehran Times. These sentences demonstrate that the judiciary is responding to calls from elected officials to end the ongoing insecurity and instability in Iran for reasons of public safety. It's clear that the U.S. is implicated in these protests and the Iranian people are paying the price. Such a forceful response to violent, illegal acts will help secure the situation. And The Washington Post is providing an anti-Iran spin. Iran is one of the world's leading executioners. It's cementing that reputation with the news that civilians will be sentenced to death for demonstrating against its regime. Authoritarian clerics are threatened by continued protests against the existing patriarchal system and by resorting to capital punishment. They've shown their fear of the genuine threat the unrest poses to the current draconian system. We have another statistics-based nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by February of 2036. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Today's final story, Ghana's junior finance minister is fired over a gold mining scandal. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Bloomberg, Ghana Business News, Africa News, Joy 99.7 FM, and Vanguard Media Limited. Ghanaian President Nana Akufo-Addo's office announced on Monday that Deputy Minister for Finance Charles Adu Boahen was fired after allegations emerged against him in an expose about an illegal gold mining scheme. The decision came after a leaked clip of Galemzi Economy, a new documentary produced by investigative journalist Anas Arameya Anas and set to be aired on Monday, appeared to show Boahen collecting nearly $200,000 from investors to give to Ghana's vice president, Mahamudu Bawumia. Bawumia defended himself on Facebook, claiming not to be aware of any such meeting by the minister and warning that his name must not be used for corrupt activities. The news comes amid calls for Finance Minister Ken Orofi Atta to be fired over accusations of economic mismanagement as the country's public debt is higher than 80% of GDP and inflation is running above 40%. Ghana has been forced to seek a $3 billion bailout from the International Monetary Fund as its currency plunged and yields on its euro bonds have surged this year amid concerns about the sustainability of the debt. 
This is only the latest expose by Aramieha Anas, whose work also led to a ban on the former Ghana Football Association president by FIFA and sanctioning of over 50 referees across Africa, as well as the dismissal of over 30 superior and lower court judges over bribes to dismiss cases. Scott, thank you for the facts of this story. Two spins emerging, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from Ghana Speak. This is further proof of the widespread corruption of the finance ministry, all the way to the top. There has long been an entanglement of politicians and banks, and nothing will ever change unless the entire ministry is dismantled and head minister Ken Ofori-Ada is also fired. We wrap today's show with a pro-establishment narrative spin from Graphic Online. Though the severity of these reports came as a surprise to President Akufo Addo, Ghana's leader has taken decisive action by immediately firing Adu Bohen and calling for an investigation into the matter. He is working to tackle the corruption. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Want more information on Improve the News? Visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.